Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 36 in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, October the 19th. First, I talk to Dr David Cook, Managing Director of Konica Minolta Australia. David has been instrumental in the development of Konica Minolta's Human Rights Framework, which is built on three core documents, an ethical sourcing roadmap, supplier code of conduct, and a human rights position statement. Its efforts are aligned with the United Nations guiding principles on business and human rights. Joining other corporate voices, he's been active in consultations on proposed legislation for a modern slavery reporting requirement for large Australian organisations. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Contrary to many organisations, David is an advocate for these laws being introduced. And then I talked to AMP Capital Chief Economist Dr Shane Oliver, looking at how the market is now in a tailspin and what to expect. But first, let's talk to Dr David Cook. Okay, David, um, okay, let me, let me put to you a question. Um, uh, you're Managing Director of Konica Minolta, and uh, you have been quite instrumental in the development of Konica Minolta's Human Rights Framework. Uh, tell us about that. Okay, so I was uh, appointed as the first non-Japanese managing director of the company five years ago, um, and the company had been in Australia for about 40 years at that point. 
and um, and I'd never been a managing director before. Um, and one of the first things I, I pondered was, um, if I'm going to be resp- ultimately responsible for this company, um, what sort of company do I want it to be? Am I happy with the way it is today? Do I believe there are certain areas that we need to change or improve or uh, areas we need to move into or whatever? And And one of the things I felt very strongly about was that I felt that we needed we needed an identity. We needed to know who we were and what we stood for, what our principles were, and you know how were we going to do business in Australia in in the sense of sort of ethics and um, you know respect for customers and the environment and so on. And um, and that's that's when I really started to embark upon this human rights journey. And so, tell us about Conakin and Alter's human rights framework. Uh, what are the core documents in it? Okay, so. Um, well, well, let me just go back one step. Um, after, after making that decision to start to move down this path, um, I realised that um, I absolutely did not have the expertise personally, and nor did we within the company at that point in time, to be able to really um, you know, develop the frameworks and policies and implement them and so on. Um, and so uh, I, I did what I normally do, which is I sort of look up and look around and see who's out there. And a lot of my research uh, led me to an organisation called Walk Free over in Perth that Andrew Forrest, the chair of Fortescue Metals, had set up, uh, and uh, which was specifically aimed at ending slavery and human rights abuses in supply chains and throughout society. And I thought, well, that's a pretty good place to start. So. Uh, headed on over there to meet their CEO. And um, uh, what transpired a few months later is that um, one of the uh, their subject matter experts that attended the meeting with me gave me a call and said, look, um, uh, I'm actually originally from Sydney, although we met in Perth. Uh, I'm, I've left Walk Free I'm, because I want to live in Sydney again. And uh, can we have a coffee? So pretty much I hired her on the spot. And um, she was our, uh, became our ethical sourcing manager. And it's really her work um, and expertise that produced, firstly, uh, an ethical sourcing roadmap, uh, and then a supplier code of conduct, which we then sat and discussed with uh, all of our key suppliers, and also a human rights position statement, as in what did Conica Minolta Australia stand for? And that third document really was... Um, off the back of um, what had been developed by the United Nations called the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, in which they expressly state that a, a commitment should be put in writing in a document of that kind. So your roadmap is basically, uh, your, your documents, your framework is basically aligned with the United Nations Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. Yes, I, I would say it's very aligned. Um, and uh, probably one uh, reality check that I can take from time to time on whether that uh, is the case and remains the case is that um, I recently joined the board of um, uh, one of the United Nations divisions in Australia called Global Compact Network Australia, which is the UN's uh, arm that reaches out to business around the world uh, and promotes the SDGs or the Sustainable Development Goals to business. And on that board um, is the Rio Tinto human rights manager, Vanessa Zimmerman. And Vanessa worked for some time with a man called Professor John Ruggie at the UN. 
and um, she was instrumental in, in uh, along with John, of course, uh, in uh, creating the guiding principles on business and human rights. And uh, they, they're generally called uh, the Ruggie Principles. And so Vanessa is probably the most knowledgeable person in Australia on those principles, and um, she would certainly hold me to account if we uh, if we weren't aligned with them. But I think we are. Now, uh, I'm, now there's all sorts of proposed legislation for a modern slavery reporting requirement for large Australian organisations. Many organisations oppose this because they just say it's too unwieldy and it's too much interference. What's your view about that? Okay, so I've got a very strong view, and um, uh, and that view is that um, Connie Kamenolta as a company, um, under my stewardship as the managing director, and I'm also the chairman of our board here, uh, is completely supportive of an Australian Modern Slavery Act. Now, the reason I say that is twofold. One is that simply that I believe that business can play a very key role in... in um, Ending might be too strong a term, but let's say reducing slavery in supply chains. Um, after all, we're the organisations that are uh, having those goods made for us or we're consuming goods made in supply chains in our businesses. And so I think we have a, a moral and ethical obligation to play a role in ending those human rights abuses. But also, um, it's a bit of a ticking time bomb in the boardrooms of Australia. Um, you know, j- just think about it for a moment. I would venture to say there are virtually no companies in Australia that either make stuff or consume stuff in the course of their business, if they're a services organisation that doesn't sell physical products, um, that um, that could say that they are 100% sure that there's no slave labour involved in, uh, you know, in any aspect of their business. So if that's the case, and slavery is, is, an, uh, uh, is illegal, which of course it is, has been for um, you know, a couple of hundred years or whatever, um, then unknowingly companies um, are complicit in this horrendous uh, international crime. And so um, boards in Australia are very mindful of risk you know, risk around, um, you know, privacy of customer data and all these kinds of things, which are very topical discussion points these days. But there's very little discussion about the, the reputational risk and legal risk to a company um, due to, you know, modern slavery or human rights abuses in supply chains. So um, this Modern Slavery Act will compel every organisation above a certain turnover threshold to start having that discussion in the boardroom. Well, the bottom line is that CEOs and boards will be ultimately be responsible. So potentially that could see company directors held accountable and potentially jailed in the near future. Would that be correct? <laughs> um, uh, uh, yes. So we're yet to see the final legislation. It's the, the government is committed to creating the legislation and very soon we'll actually know the um, all the content of that but the recommendation from the Senate subcommittee that um, consulted very, very widely uh, around Australia with all sectors who have put, um, put the proposal to government is that it does uh, require director sign-off when the lodgement is made every year on behalf of the company. And I think that's a very, very good thing. Um, because, you know, again, if you, if you don't have complete accountability 
at the highest levels of the corporations in Australia, then you tend to get a situation of very well-meaning people, you know, at the CSR level or sustainability manager level or whatever, um, you know, do it, doing their utmost, but not really getting the traction for true change in the company that's required. Right, right, right. So this is this is quite critical now, and of course, there's a massive risk involved here. Now, uh, being a good corporate citizen, therefore, in your view, goes more than just philanthropy. It means companies need to actually turn inward to assess the impact of their core business and operations. Would that be correct? Uh, yes, absolutely. So I think they're two very different things. Um, uh, if if a company wants to engage in corporate philanthropy. Um, through foundations or whatever, I think that's a very, very good thing. Um, uh, However, much more fundamental is not to be involved in human rights abuses because that's criminal activity, albeit inadvertent by most companies in Australia that that might have those issues in their supply chains. Um, And and, and there's an interesting uh, interesting expression in the human rights field or the social justice field, which is... Um, there are no carbon offsets when it comes to human rights. Now, what, what that's a reference to is that when you look at environmental sustainability, a company could be a big com- polluter, and, and in some cases they're very manufacturing processes. They, they simply have to be, um, you know, and, and to better methods and systems are found or whatever. Um, but they can offset that pollution generally by the planting of lots of trees somewhere else in the world um, through a third-party organisation. So they can offset their carbon outputs. But in human rights, if you've got slavery in your supply chain, you can't just give a bunch of money away to a charity or a good cause or whatever and say, well, that's okay, we've offset the use of slaves because we've done something bad over there and something good over there. There are no no carbon offsets uh, in the world of, of human rights and social justice. Well, David, that is quite extraordinary, and uh, it's quite extraordinary that Conica Minolta is doing this under your leadership. And thank you very much for your time. Absolute pleasure, Leon. Thank you very much. Thank Bye-bye. you. And now let's hear from economist Shane Oliver. Shane Oliver, the market has been plunging again. It's uh, the third time it's happened again this year. It uh, happened in February. It happened in March. And now again, should investors be worried, or is this just another rough patch? I think it's more likely just another rough patch, just another correction. If you go back through history, you often see these periods of volatility that markets go through. Last year was a relatively smooth year for markets. Um, And, of course, that led to a degree of complacency. And, of course, we're paying for that this year. We've also seen a few more things to worry about this year, of course, with the Fed continuing to raise interest rates a bit more aggressively than we saw last year. And, of course, the trade issues, worries about Italy, uh, the, the broader conflict, I guess, with China between the US and so on. And so these things are causing this volatility. But as long as global growth remains reasonably OK, which seems to be the case, and interest rates are still relatively low globally and indeed in Australia, and, of course, uh, profits are still rising, then that broad backdrop, I think, is still positive and suggests to me that Yes, this correction, this pullback could go further. Um, it's virtually impossible to time when it's going to bottom out, but um, I, I do see it as a correction. So you, you can't say how many more weeks we have left of this? Well, trying to time these things, I, I think, is... Uh, I mean, some people will try, but I think it's uh, next to impossible to say with any certainty. 
Uh, often these corrections can go up to 10%. So far, we've come down around 7%. Uh, so it wouldn't surprise if we, uh, we do go down a little bit more. Um, if you go back to the correction we saw earlier this year, that uh, markets peaked in uh, late January or, gen say, January, and the falls continued particularly into February. Um, but markets ultimately didn't bottom out till either late March or uh, early April. Um, so it could certainly go on for a little bit longer than what we've seen so far. Uh, that's interesting. I mean, you, you mentioned issues like, say, Italy, and you mentioned issues like the Fed and issues with China, but there's other issues like uh, technology shares, which have been key drivers of the US share market rally, have been vulnerable because they've, um, they're facing increased regulation in the US, uh, which is something that President Trump has been threatening. And you've also got rising oil prices. That's true. Those things are also in there. You've got to add them to the worry list. Uh, there's no doubt that, uh, and this is one of the problems, that the US share market has been a key outperformer over the last few years. And within that, uh, the technology sector has played a key role. And the technology sector has largely been immune to a lot of the turmoil we've seen in other parts of the market in recent years, particularly the finance sector. But now it seems as if the technology sector might face its own regulatory imposts or increase in regulation. So that's weighing on technology stocks um, and, of course, yes, we do have the rise in the oil price. Of course, through this recent correction, the oil price has come back down, um, but it's still relatively elevated, and we're we sort of going into a period where we're going to see a sharp cutback in supplies from Iran as a result of US sanctions kicking in next month. Um, so those issues with oil are still out there. We've got an environment of fairly strong demand for oil globally, um, but there are some threats to supply, notably from Iran. So that's a bit of an issue as well. Uh, the uh, What's interesting is uh, what's happening with global earnings growth. That seems to be uh, remaining quite reasonable at the moment. Uh, yeah, earnings growth overall has been quite solid. It, it's it's uh, probably past its peak. I think the peak was probably uh, around the June quarter, um, most notably in the US where earnings growth over the year to the June quarter was around 27, 28%. Um, 10 percentage points or so of that was due to uh, tax cuts, of course, in the US, the corporate tax cuts. Um, the current reporting season in the US, which is only just getting underway, is likely to see earnings growth, or well, the market is around 21%, um, assuming a bit of upside surprise, which we normally get, then probably comes down to about, comes up to about 23, 24%. So that, that would suggest that earnings are still pretty strong, um, but that you are seeing a little bit of a loss of momentum from what we saw earlier in the year. And it's in the rest of the world, earnings growth, of course, is a lot lower than in the US, um, but it's still reasonable. And that, of course, uh, imparts a uh, reasonable backdrop for share markets. Uh, and the dividends from the market haven't exactly fallen either. No, they haven't. That's one of the things you notice uh, through most corrections we go through, that uh, the value of your shares goes down. Um, roughly speaking, we've seen a, a 7% uh, peak to a recent low fall in the share markets, um, but your dividends continue to get paid. So, of course, it really depends on what an investor is most interested in. Is it the income flow they get from the share market, getting a, a good, decent income flow, or whether it's the value of their investments? Ultimately, of course, on a long-term basis, you want the value of your investments to go up, but dividends are a lot smoother. And uh, they have held up reasonably well, which tells me that um, 
there's still plenty of value there in the market. For example, if you look at the Australian share market, if you want to put your money in bank term deposits, they'll be totally safe or almost totally safe. Um, but you're only getting around 2.2%. Of course, you can chop around a bit. You might get a bit more, you might get a bit less, but term deposit rates are still very low. Whereas uh, dividend yields, if you gross up for franking credits, are still pushing towards 6%. They're actually quite attractive. Um, and so the the income flow coming from the share market in Australia is still quite attractive, which then, of course, begs the question is, are those dividends going to continue to go up in the banking sector, given the issues in the financial sector generally? Uh, yes, there may be some constraints there, but I don't see a big cut in dividends coming, uh, probably slower growth in dividends, but I don't see a big cut in dividends from uh, the, the banking sector. Uh, the issue, though, for investors is there's so much noise. I mean, at times like this, you've got such negative news reaching almost fever pitch and uh, all sorts of news about uh, billions being wiped off share markets. Uh, what do investors do? Well, I, I think it's a case of trying to turn down the volume on that noise. Uh, these periods that we go through can be very scary for investors. You turn on the radio, you look at the headlines, we're told $50 has been wiped off the market um, or whatever. And that sounds like a horrible number. You just got to bear in mind that you you actually haven't suffered a loss unless you actually sell your shares at those lower levels. Um, and the other thing to note is that the media will often tell you that billions have been wiped off, but they never tell you when it's been put back on. And most of the time, it is put on. If you go back through history, the share market in Australia tends to rise eight years out of ten, um, but we're never told. Uh, of the billions being put on the market. And that's probably because of the nature of market gains. Market gains tend to be more modest. We go up via the stairs. And that's what we spend most of the time doing. When we come down, we come down via the elevator. So you get a big number. Um, but the broad trend in the market is invariably up. The share market has climbed a wall of worry over, over decades, over centuries. And the best way is to try and focus on the long term and not get distracted by a lot of this volatility that occurs in the short term and the noise around that. Uh, one of the issues is that some economists are pointing to a US recession in 2020, which happens to be an election year, and uh, share market falls associated with recessions tend to be longer and deeper. And uh, So what's your view about that? Well, I think that's right, and that's often the way I assess it. Uh, when we see a correction, uh, I guess the question I ask myself, is a US recession on the horizon. And the reason I say US recession is historically, if you look at the Australian share market, uh, even the falls in the Australian share market have been longer and deeper if there's been a US recession. For example, at the time of the GFC, our share market fell 55%, just like US shares, but we had no recession in Australia. The key was what happened in the US. Same historically, that if you're going to get a long, deep bear market where the market comes down, say, 20%, a year later, it's down another 20-odd percent. Um, invariably, they tend to be associated with US recessions. I tend to think, yes, there is a recession out there somewhere, um, but it's probably still a fair way off. Um, I was thinking maybe 2020, um, but that's still still some time away. Um, that's still you know, not 18 months or so before we get to that, that point. Um, but at the moment, there's still no... The indicators you normally expect to see prior to recession aren't there. We don't have excessively tight monetary policy. We don't have a major inflation problem in the US necessitating the Fed to slam on the brakes. We don't have overinvestment in, in sectors like housing or technology like we did prior to the last two recessions. So 
a lot of the indicators that you expect to see prior to a recession just aren't there yet. Um, at some point, they will be. And then, of course, uh, you know, we might you know, face the risk of a much deeper uh, deeper bear market. But that's that's still some time down the track, I think. Right, right. And meanwhile, the, you would expect the Fed to keep raising rates? I think yeah, it's going to be a process of continued gradual rate hikes from the Fed. Um, we're looking at a hike every three months like we have over the last year or so. So that probably continues. But don't forget, interest rates in the US, just above 2%, are still very low historically. And if we're in an environment where the US growth is very strong, where unemployment is historically low, I think we've got the lowest level of unemployment since 1969 in the US, uh, where wages growth is picking up, it makes sense for the Fed to be raising interest rates to more normal levels. But they've got a fair way to go before they get above that, before you can say that US monetary policy is tight and therefore there's a risk that they're going to slide into recession. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I think, at least a year away before that can happen. Now, of course, there can be a left-field event comes along, like a, a war or a major oil shock could change that um, assessment. But, of course, uh, yeah, that's, that's unknowable. That's uh, going to be hard to try and forecast that. And you can say that at any point in time, there was this, there's a risk of a left-field event. So I think barring a left-field event, more likely scenarios, this is a correction, could go further, could go deeper. Um, but to get a major bear market, we'd need more evidence that the US is about to go into, into, a, into a recession. And uh, so the question is, uh, uh, should investors be worried or really is this just part of a normalisation of monetary policy in America? I, I think investors should really see this as part of the normalisation of monetary policy in America. And that process has been going on for several years now. We first heard about uh, moves to taper US money printing uh, back in 2013. So uh, over five years ago now. And every time there's been a, a sort of a, Every so often along the way, there's been these little setbacks in markets of investors that said, we've got used to this money printing, we've got used to zero interest rates, now it's changing, maybe the sky will fall in. And of course, um, the sky hasn't fallen. The US economy has continued to motor along, the Fed's been doing the right thing, and uh, the share market rally has resumed. Um, and I think this what we're seeing at the moment is another one of those that markets go through. There's occasional periods of concern and then, of course, realise, well, it's not that bad. The you know, economy's still growing um, and, and the market continues on its way up. Now, the only thing, of course, you've got to allow for is that we are further through the cycle than we were five years ago. So the risks are a little bit higher today than they were back in 2013. Um, but it is just worth remembering that experience that, Every so often, the market has gone through these corrections, whether it's the taper tantrum, whether it's the growth scare, the fear that the Fed was raising interest rates prematurely back in late 2015, early 2016, and various other little events along the way, like the one we saw earlier this year. Well, Shane Oliver, it's always a light talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the program. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, while Wall Street enjoyed its biggest one-day surge since March only a week after suffering its worst fall since February, concerns about the market remain. You could write it off as a fluke in February. When it happened again in March, people got concerns. And then stocks were tumbling again for the third time last week in 2018, and investors are now starting to sense that something has changed. A smattering of 3% plunges may not make a bear market, but it sure is a break from the past, which saw only th three such ruptures over six years.
Sell-offs are getting more common, though no easier to withstand. Tech has been bleeding red. Donald Trump is railing at the Federal Reserve. And stocks that sat comfortably at record high just three weeks ago have had just one up day in seven sessions. While the last two weeks haven't seen wholesale carnage, it's more proof that a new era of volatility is upon us, one that is likely to last. Bad days pile up and it gets harder to deny that five of the quietest years are over. A lot of things are roiling the market, from Federal Reserve rate hikes and geopolitical tensions with China to a rising expectation of a slowdown in earnings growth that had supported stocks for years. The most pressing problem is probably rising rates. Ten-year Treasury yields topped out at almost 3.26% last week, the highest in seven years. And the UK and the European Union are on course to miss this week's key milestone on the road to a Brexit deal after talks broke up in a stalemate. A weekend of intense negotiations, including a surprise dash by Brexit Secretary Dominic Raab to meet his EU counterpart Michel Barnier in Brussels, failed to break the deadlock. There will be no further attempts to resolve the impasse. Officials on both sides have now all but given up hope of a breakthrough this week, and they are increasingly concerned that time is running out to get an agreement before the UK's exit in March. And another important piece of news, Sears Holdings, the 125-year-old retailer that became an icon for generations of American shoppers filed for bankruptcy, saddled with billions of dollars of debt racked up as it struggled to adjust to the rapid shift towards online consumption. The company filed for Chapter 11 protection from creditors with a US bankruptcy court and said Eddie Lampert is stepping down immediately as chief executive. The retailer, for years called Sears, Roebuck & Co., and famous for its massive catalogue, boomed in the decades after World War II, along with a growing middle class. But it wasn't able to keep up with shifting consumer habits, as online rivals, including Amazon.com, siphoned off shoppers, while turnaround efforts were hobbled by mountains of debt. Sears, which sold everything from craftsman tools to Kenmore appliances, lost its footing in the 1980s with expansions into financial products such as banking, mortgages, insurance and credit cards. Walmart supplanted Sears as the biggest retailer in the early 1990s. The retailer listed more than $10 billion in debt and more than $1 billion in assets in its filings. And to Australia. And complaints about the country's two biggest phone and internet providers, Optus and Telstra, continued to make up the bulk of consumer gripes to the National Telecommunications Industry Ombudsman. The TIO received 167,831 complaints last financial year. That's the highest number in three years. More than a third were about the time it took to address or fix phone or internet issues. Optus had a 35% increase in complaints compared with the previous year, while Telstra topped the list of the most complained about telco, which reflects the company's market share. And while the MBN had featured prominently in previous TIO reports, the latest figures revealed fewer complaints about the internet service. And the recently released 9 Fairfax merger scheme has put the combined value of Stan and Domain at close to $2 billion. That dwarfs the value of Fairfax's newspaper services. An independent export report featured in the recently released merger scheme for Nine Fairfax confirms what Nine really wanted to get its hands on. The 50% of the stand's streaming servants it doesn't yet own and Fairfax's 59.4% stake in the domain property listing business. According to a scheme of arrangement between the two companies in details released on the ASX, the combined group, which will be known as Nine Entertainment Holdings Limited, will see Fairfax's existing business units integrated into Nine's corporate structure. 
Following implementation, Nine will review the scope and breadth of the combined group to align with its strategic objectives and its digital future. Subject to that review, it's intended that the combined group will continue to operate Fairfax's businesses, including print. A total of $50 million of cost savings have been identified from the merger, with a streamlining of technology and related functions within both businesses amounting to $15 million of cost synergies. A total of $15 million in savings will come from media sales, from the removal of duplication across sales teams, as well as commercial operations. Merging corporate and divisional support functions will save approximately $15 million, and this includes areas such as finance, human resources, marketing, property services, and content. Content savings will be $5 million and relate to the sharing of lifestyle-oriented content used by similar website brands run separately by Nine and Fairfax. The savings will be made within two years of the media merger. And ANZ customers could effectively be barred from banking at post offices amid a standoff between the bank and Australia Post. The bank has so far refused the terms of a new offer by Australia Post to continue providing banking services to ANZ customers at post offices. ANZ's existing contract with Australia Post is due to expire in three months. Now, under a new contract offered by Australia Post Chief Executive Christine Holgate, ANZ would help fund the cost of providing the banking services. If the bank doesn't agree to the new terms within three months, ANZ customers will no longer be able to bank at Australia Post. Now, Westpac and National Australia Bank have each signed historic agreements that would help guarantee the future of local banking services through post offices in communities across Australia. And the Commonwealth Bank agreed to the deal last month. And NAB is the latest bank to unveil additional customer remediation costs for the fees for no service scandal, announcing a $314 million after-tax charge. NAB CEO Andrew Thorburn said the compensation was warranted. The announcement comes ahead of Professor Thorburn's appearance in front of the House Economics Committee meeting in Canberra on Friday. Last week, ANZ flagged an $824 million hit to its annual result due to customer compensation for services that either weren't provided or were inadequate, as well as other charges. And West Farmers' coal supermarket arm posted a 5% rise in first quarter sales as it prepares for its demerger next month. Coal's same-store food sales rose a stronger-than-expected 5.1% in the September quarter. That's the strongest growth since March quarter 2016, as consumers flocked to coal supermarkets for miniature plastic groceries and free plastic bags, an improvement on the 0.3% lift in the previous corresponding period last year, and up on the previous quarter's 1.8% lift. Parent company West Farmers cited a successful Little Shop campaign and investment in flybys promotions as preparations continue for a vote on the chain's proposed demerger. Managing Director Rob Scott said the growth showed the supermarket chain had continued to focus on in-store execution as shareholders prepared to vote next month on the proposed $20 billion merger. Now the 5.1% same-store growth for the three months to September beat analysts' forecasts between 4% and 5%, and it was underpinned by strong growth in average basket size, units sold, and transactions as Cold launched its successful Little Shop promotion and handed out free renewable plastic bags after banning single-use bags. And new Coles Managing Director Stephen Kane says he's willing to exit the $35 billion retail fuel market at the right price to end a deal that has saddled the retailer with Australia's highest petrol prices and led to a one-third slump in sales volumes over the past two years. 
Mr. Kane revealed that Coles, which is soon to emerge from West Farmers, is experimenting with a convenience store format that sells on-the-go foods such as sandwiches and snacks and a range of grocery staples. But crucially, it does not sell fuel. And finally, angry Telstra shareholders have cast nearly two-thirds of votes against executive pay in a year when the telecommunications giant's share price collapsed and dividends were slashed. At the annual general meeting on Tuesday, 62% of votes were cast against Telstra's remuneration report. The vote is the worst registered by an ASX 100 company, exceeding the 61% votes cast against AMP's pay practices in March this year and Commonwealth Bank's 50% protest in 2016. Telstra chairman John Mullen conceded the telco was headed for a first strike, but argued the company has not underperformed and the board has to find the right balance of attracting and retaining the best talent with share performance. Now, a strike occurs when 25% of votes are cast against a remuneration report. A strike two years in a row paves the way for a vote to spill the entire board. And the Telstra chairman said to vote against a remuneration report was largely related to the poor share price performance. In the 2017-18 financial year, Telstra shares collapsed nearly 40%. And that's it for this week. And next week I have a terrific interview with Anson Wang. He's the managing director of JobStore, an exciting job search site. In the meantime, you can keep up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBOZ or on Facebook. Looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.